Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cool, cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Joe Harrison. Joe is the chief executive of NMTF, formerly known as the National Market Traders Federation, headquartered in Hoyland, Barnsley. Uh, Joe, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Morning, Scott, and, and thanks for the invite. It's a real pleasure welcoming you on to um, the airwaves with us. And we are really grateful for your time, Joe, because it's so important in the context of what we're trying to do here to really get the authentic voices of British industry out into the uh, national sphere. And normally at this point in the show, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I think it's appropriate that we start with that because it's proven to be such a significant challenge, one of the biggest challenges of our time i think it's fair to say for leaders within all walks of life and communities alike but for you and an mtf to what extent has it affected you and what you've been doing well it's had a considerable effect obviously as you've already said scott this this is um this has been life-changing in in a lot of ways because we've had to rethink how we do everything and uh, it's had a tremendous effect on our membership because we're a membership organization we're nearly 20,000 retail market traders. Um, and, and obviously the, the lockdown had a major effect on that. Um, and then obviously the build back since the, uh, the prime minister announced that open markets could reopen on the 1st of June. Um, we've, we've, we've really worked tremendously hard uh, as a team here at the NMCF to support those uh, independent retailers uh, on our markets so we can get back there. And um, and it's still quite tough, and particularly more on the indoor markets, of which there is quite a number, in the, certainly in the north of England. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Victorian market halls and the like. So, yeah, it's been particularly tough, obviously financially tough, um, but it's created problems that we've never dealt with before. And, um, and thankfully, we feel that we've dealt with it quite well. And uh, and as I say, and the important part of that is the the team I've got in place here with you know surrounding me at mm. the NMCF. Uh, they've all played their roles out to the nth degree. Exactly right. Leadership is just as much about the people around you as it is about yourself at the helm of any business or organisation. And you find that in times of adversity, I think that people do tend to really step up and bring the best out in themselves. And we've certainly seen that in abundance during the COVID-19 pandemic across industry as a whole. And um, just considering the um, the sort of situation for market traders and indeed retail as a whole at the moment, uh, Joe, it's an uncertain time, isn't it? Because footfall on the high streets um, is ultimately down um, compared to what it's pre- been in previous years. And the worry with that is that even when we have a COVID-19 vaccine in place and then the virus itself is hopefully no longer an issue, let's keep our fingers crossed that will be the case eventually, um, the anxiety that's going to be 
um, of course, persisting as a result of this pandemic and then that the effect on consumer confidence, that could leave a little bit of a COVID hangover for some time to come, couldn't it? And people may be hesitant to venture out and go shopping out on the high streets. And that's going to have a severe impact. Yes, it has. You know, let, let, let's not kid ourselves. Our town centres and high streets were having a, a considerable problem prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. This is just 10 times it. Uh, in, in my opinion, or if not more. Um, and as I've said, you know, I spoke before, we, we, we reopened uh, outdoor markets on the 1st of June and then most uh, indoor retail could uh, begin back by the 15th of June. Uh, and as I've already said, indoor markets have had probably more of a problem with that, that, that what you've just mentioned, if people's confidence to go and shop indoors um, is, is a great problem um, and obviously the, it looms over us all but um, but no it, it, it will be a tough way back uh, but we feel in the markets industry that um, we could be part of that solution and um, the fact that we have outdoor markets outdoor outdoor shopping is probably the safest shopping to do right now um, and the fact that we um, most of us will envisage there will be a considerable number of redundancies from other industries per se, and particularly the hospitality and travel and the likes. But what we've we've uh, known of uh, in historically, when we've hit large recessions where there's mm. been an increase in in redundancies and and the likes, that we've seen an influx of people that may have been wishing to have their own business, and and it's always a lot easier, believe you me, I, I know I've had first-hand experience when I was only 21. Um, it's easier to, to be pushed than to jump. And um, we're, we are working, we have now virtually in place and ready to launch um, a, a business self-help guide to, uh, to help somebody that may fancy and has had a, a passion or a, a, for a certain craft or, you know, cooking or whatever that might consider self-employment as a way forward in the future and and use markets and market trading as a way to begin that because most of the household names on our high street today started their businesses from a market store. So um, whilst we are fighting the fires, as it were, in, in making sure that the industry gets back there um, and we have a a demographic, age demographic in the industry, which was in the higher level, which mm. the pandemic has actually um, encouraged those in that age group to, to retire. And so therefore, there is room now on our market for people to, um, to start back. And, uh, and I think positive thinking along those lines, constructive positive thinking, is probably an answer back to the retail situation uh, as i say it wasn't that great prior to the pandemic and obviously the pandemic's done its business and uh, and we've made things a, a hell of a lot worse but um i think what we did learn in the lockdown is that people appreciated their local independent uh, traders um, and shopkeepers and and we've seen an upsurge in in people going back to their markets and their local you know, bakers and butchers and mm. fishmongers and your know, costermongers, you know, fruit and veg sellers. Um, and so 
we are hopeful that markets can play a very big role in building those uh, localities back uh, in, in the town centre. But I'm on the, the sector's uh, leaders group uh, for the, the High Street Task Force. And, um, you know, there's a big challenge out there for us right across the piece. And, and I think sometimes we've now, this is more than ever, we've now got to start thinking outside the box as far as that's concerned, and engaging on a human level with the, the, the consumers and, and what they want and what they would want from their high streets and town centres. It's all about adapting and innovating to the changing circumstances and surroundings, isn't it, from that point of Com- view? Com- completely. Mm. The COVID has made it, you know, it was, it was needed prior to, but now it's made it a necessity. We've got to start thinking afresh, thinking how we approach the situation. Maybe small is beautiful, as we, we are noticing with many of the, the bigger retailers. They're reducing their physical presence uh, and increasing their online presence. And and we've, you know, prior to to the pandemic and the lockdown, we, we've encouraged our traders to, to develop websites and have an online presence and support their physical presence you know, on their markets and, and it's, you know, make technology work for you. Um, and, it, and it's proven, actually, it's been brought forward, the, the uptake of that has been brought forward massively through through the, the lockdown and um, and they're, they're now starting back on their physical stalls with an with a, with a online presence as well. And I, I think the blend of the two is is the the answer for the future mm. that the, the, they've got the offer of the independent and um, and what they do and and on that service that they give but also the convenience that while you're a busy person in your working life you can still shop with them um, as well uh, when when it's convenient or click and collect situations and and the like so we need to use the technology to our advantage not just for technology's sake and um, and, and make make people's lives better, um, but still have that human contact and that human interaction safely, obviously, in our current times. And just thinking about what you said before about the fact that out of every sort of recession um, and crisis comes an opportunity. Um, you mentioned, of course, that there were openings within the uh, the sector and it could form part of the solution. Well, one of the things, of course, that has been a success o- um, over the last seven years that, of course, you have been doing at NMTF is the Young Trader Market Programme, which encourages sort of the younger generations of people between the ages of 16 and 30 to start their entrepreneurial journey in market trading. Now, not only does the UK have a great on- entrepreneurial spirit in itself anyway but also we've got um, a lot of young people at the moment who may be downhearted by the current situation and the effect that covid is having on the economy and on their employment prospects and the message to those people who may have their sort of heads down at the moment is that there are opportunities in market trading that could potentially be for you if um, that is um, part of your passion very very much so scott you you, you, you nail on the head and i've got to say the experience i gained um, by by us running this project for the last seven years is what tremendous young people we've got in our country, and and really in their initiative and and the way that they've conducted themselves through the, the you know we've we've run the program now seven years and and each and every one of them all right we've you know we've done it as a competition type thing but each and every one of them are are, are winners because. They've, they've gained in confidence. They've learned all the basics in in business. 
in a practical way and in a practical arena. And and it's and, you know it's it's it will stand them in great stead going forward in their lives, entrepreneurial lives. It, it will make a massive difference because it's always great to start small and build build on that. And um, yeah, it's a great success. And we're looking to to also uh, with this new project. In fact, I'll give you the title because it's we're hoping to launch it next month. It's called Spring Into Market. And it's a huge 137-page um, project, that, which is a self-help guide on all aspects of, you know, these basic retail principles and, and how to, you know, it's almost like sitting down and talking to a, a chap that's been in retail for 70 years, but you're reading it from a book. Or, or actually, you're going to read it online because it's going to be exclusively online to and, and accessible to everybody, not just NNTF members. Um, and and that is our contribution to the build back from the NMTF is to give those opportunities. And uh, as I say, there's lots of people out there. We've got twenty thousand of them as members that have built good living that way. And so it's uh, you know, entrepreneurship is not a dirty word. It's it, in fact it's quite the opposite. And um, I'd like we would like to engage more in the educational sector. Mm. And, and introduce that. We've start, started that now and we're starting to work with some of the colleges. But there's, there's nothing wrong with uh, building your own business from scratch. In fact, there's a great deal of satisfaction. And, um, and as I say, we've got some tremendously great young people, but we're also looking at people that may want to take a second career and, and actually start again, as it were, with, but as their own boss, be your own boss. And um, there is there is them opportunity. We've got every cloud as a silver line, as you say, Scott, and and we're hoping that people can see the benefits of that. And again, it it, it contributes to that positive thinking and and I'm working out a positive way forward. It certainly does, and I certainly do wish you all the luck in the uh, the world as well uh, with regard to the Spring into Markets project. It's something that's uh, really worthwhile, and something that we'll certainly be keeping an eye on over the course of the uh, the next uh, few months as that comes to fruition. And as well as that, um, that you're going to be focusing on over the uh, the next year or so, Joe. Um, I'm interested to understand what other plans you have for the future, um, especially as we're continuing to get to grips with the uh, the new normal. And indeed, where do you see yourselves being as an organisation this time next year? Well, we, 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 I've already said that you know we will we have lost membership because people have retired in the main, or, or their businesses have really struggled and we've, we've lost them, and and therefore we have to rethink, we have to regauge our you know how we we deliver the support that we can. Um, we have streamlined uh, as far as as people are concerned, but I believe it's we've got quality over quantity now in in our in our team, um, and I've said, and I will continue to say many times, anybody's only as good as the people that you've got around you, and as they're all pulling in the same direction, um, we, we, you can achieve some great things. And the, the development of the YTM is a prime example of that. We started with two trial areas, and we moved it out to six, you know, regions uh, last year, and um, and then you know, we, we, you know. The final was on the one show of the BBC. I mean, people are getting it now that, that there is a way in. But as an organisation, we need to, uh, we, we do. Uh, you know, if you've visited our website, we have a tremendous amount of advice on there and guidance, not just in, 
in, in, in their working lives, but in their general lives as well. And we've tried to be that place, that, that market trade family, and that's what we need to be um, going forward. And I think that personal uh, touch, you, people ring here, people speak to human beings, they don't speak to machines. Uh, and I think we need to emphasise that right across the piece on all industries, that um, that uh, interaction, that human interaction is, is a real vital part, uh, part of, of moving things forward for the future and combating all these um, downturns that we see. Yeah, let's certainly hope so, that because we are going to have to uh, come out of this and recover sooner rather than later. And let's just keep our fingers crossed that it isn't going to be essentially a long drawn out thing um, in doing that. Um, I do wish you all the luck in the world, Joe, and uh, your endeavours over the uh, the next few months. And I actually think, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme today, that it'd be fantastic to welcome you back on at some point in the next year, just to see how some of your plans are starting to come to fruition. It'd be my pleasure to come and, and share them with you. Um, you know, on behalf of the team here at NMTF, it's, um, we are looking forward to the future and, and making a difference. And that's what we need to do. We know that and, and how well we do that will be, will come into fruition. I'd be happy to come back and, and talk to you on that. It's a fantastic ambition and I really hope there's some positive news to share before too long. Thank you ever so much for your time today, Joe. It's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto our programme and most importantly, do take care and do stay safe until we do speak again with everything that's still going on. I'll certainly make sure I do. Thanks, Scott. Good to speak to you. Bye-bye. Likewise, Joe. And I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of other people because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was such a pleasure to welcome Joe Harrison, Chief Executive of NMTF, onto today's programme. Uh, coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career, despite being blind from birth, having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and occupied a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership. Lord Blunkett has been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. And that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a 
politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people 
who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was 
all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? 
Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your 
thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another 
and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with 
ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of action that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, 
kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.